tonight on Farage. Jeff Hoon, who was Tony Blair's defence secretary, makes some pretty damning statements about the lead-up to the Iraq war. We ask, should Tony Blair get his knighthood? We'll speak to Rabbi Rubenstein, who, after 30 years of broadcasting on the BBC, has left accusing it of anti-Semitism. And joining me on Talking Pints tonight, winner of The Apprentice in 2015 and serial entrepreneur Joe Valenti. Good evening. We will debate whether Tony Blair should be getting a knighthood or not in the light of some fresh revelations overnight from Jeff Hoon, who was, back at the time of the Iraq War, the Defence Secretary. But first, today in the House of Commons, it's been the first Prime Minister's questions of the year. Boris Johnson, of course, the Prime Minister, up against, no, not Sir Keir Starmer. He's got Covid again. Sadly, in his case, clearly the booster didn't work. So he was represented by Angela Rayner. And it focused very heavily on the cost of living. That was the Labour attack line. But what I found particularly interesting was the debate around VAT. VAT on our heating bills. And this is what Angela Rayner had to say. I'll tell you what this Prime Minister is doing. He's increasing taxes to the hard-working people of this country. That's what he's doing. That's what he didn't promise in his manifesto, but that's what he's doing to the people. And I quote, Mr Speaker, the poorest households spend three times more on their income on household energy bills than the richest households spend. VAT on energy bills makes gas and electricity more expensive. Not my words, Mr Speaker, but the words of the Prime Minister himself. When energy bills are going to be hiked again in April, any decent government would find a way to help British families. Even the Tory backbenchers have finally accepted Labour's call to cut VAT on energy bills. So will he finally stand up to his Chancellor and do the same? Mr Speaker, let me remind because she wasn't obviously listening to the previous answer. Uh, let, me, let me remind her the warm homes discount already. 2.2 million people supported up to the tune of £140 a week. Pensioners supported uh, with £300 uh, through the winter fuel payment. Uh, the, the, the cold weather payments for 4 million people. Well, here's the point. You see, the Labour Party there are saying cut VAT on fuel bills. And I agree with them. Funny enough, as Remainers, they couldn't have done that because the European Union has set a minimum of 5%, which is where that levy is. And yet Boris Johnson, you know, who came back at Angela Rayner and said to her very clearly, you know, you've changed your mind. You, you're now advocating doing something that would only be allowed under Brexit. We now have the freedom to do this. The question is, Prime Minister, why aren't you doing it? Because the argument that's now being put by number 10, is, ah, if we cut VAT on heating bills, that means a lot of better-off people will also benefit. Yes, Prime Minister, but it would be a very clear way of demonstrating a real dividend from Brexit. Goodness me, you never know. Next, the Labour Party may even start debating the 25% surcharge on our, on our electricity bills for green subsidy, though I rather doubt it. But it was good that that debate happened in the House of Commons because the cost of living and, indeed, the energy bills when they arrive this April is going to be a major political issue. And there's another issue that I've been talking about that explains, in many ways, why support 
is leeching away from the Conservative Party in the Red Wall, and it is on the issue of immigration. Now, very rarely, very rarely does anybody in the House of Commons even discuss the subject, but Sir Edward Lee chose to in PMQs today. Apparently the government is thinking of relaxing visa controls from India in order to get a free trade deal. Whilst a free trade deal is valuable in itself, we should not be held to ransom. Would he agree with me that our new working class voters who voted Brexit did not vote to replace immigration from Europe with more immigration from the rest of the world? Any more that when they were told that they would take back control, we would lose control of the channel. So will he convince us that he is determined to connect to our supporters and control immigration? Yes, yes, Mr. I, I, I don't uh, recognise the, the account he's given at all. We don't, uh, we don't do free trade deals on that, uh, on that basis. And I can tell him, actually, uh, that uh, net immigration, uh, since we took back control, uh, has gone down, uh, Mr. Speaker. Well, net migration's gone down because of the pandemic. And when it comes to what's happening over the channel, uh, Boris Johnson did not have an answer. But there are two big debates that will go on throughout this year, and they may well shape where politics goes. Now, a story that was out overnight. Jeff Hoon, who was the Defence Secretary at the time of the Iraq War, is publishing a book. The book, See How They Run, and it does include a remarkable statement that Tony Blair's Chief of Staff, Jonathan Powell, told his senior official to burn a legal document that was put forward by Lord Goldsmith, the Attorney General, and the advice was on whether going to war in Iraq would be legal. He was told to burn it. That is the claim made by Jeff Hoon. The newspapers report that this story came out in 2015. I don't remember ever seeing it before. Now, it should be said at the beginning, Tony Blair has been promoted to order of the garter. And all former prime ministers do get the order of the garter. And with that, either comes a knighthood or an earldom. But is Tony Blair fit and proper for this? And I ask this question because three quarters of a million people have signed a petition saying he shouldn't be knighted. Well, joining me now over the phone is Colonel Tim Collins, OBE, former British Army officer who led the Royal Irish Regiment into Iraq in 2003. Tim, good evening. Good evening. And we all remember that speech you gave on eve of battle. Now, Mr Blair made the decision and he was backed by Parliament to get involved in that Iraq war. And, you know, you guys went off and did the very best job that you could. Are there really grounds to say that what happened there was illegitimate and that he's not deserving of, of being a member of the Order of the Garter? Well, I, I think that uh, the, 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 one needs to go back slightly further, and that's to uh, his involvement in, in the, the peace process in Northern Ireland, which had, by and large had been settled by Sir John Major and the Irish government. The, the difference Tony Blair made to it was um, celebrity-type spin, which actually watered down the agreement and has left us in the position we're in now. But where I really take issue with what Tony Blair did was that then uh, we went to, to war on a dodgy do dossier. 
um, as, as bit part players and not pulling our weight in terms of assisting the coalition in advice. And, and the crucial piece of advice that certainly I saw before I took command of the Royal Irish when I was serving with special forces at headquarters, special forces at the Iraqi army was the institution that we needed to look to, to, to hold Iraq together until a replacement, a democratic replacement for Saddam Hussein could be um, brought about. And when they disbanded the Iraqi army, um, they unleashed a, a form of terror which cost many lives, both Iraqi and, in our case, British lives. But, but Tim, but Tim, but Tim couldn't you argue, couldn't you argue, you know, going back decades, perhaps even centuries, that British prime ministers in moments of crisis have made good decisions and made bad decisions. And that was a bad decision, clearly a very bad decision. But does it disqualify Tony Blair from receiving the accolade that all other former prime ministers in modern times have been awarded? Well, I think that the real irony of it is that he, it's the order of the garter, which is a, a, a personal gift from the, the, the sovereign. And, uh, and the sovereign is the institution that he, he sought so much to undermine with new labor. We saw at the uh, millennium how the queen was made to be a, a prop at the, uh, at the new uh, labor celebration of he and, and, and Cherie Blair. And uh, he's now coming cap in hand, except um, and perhaps he'd be gracious enough to say to the queen, you were right. Well, I have to say, I do agree with that. I thought the millennium was very tasteless and the role of the Queen. She must have been cringing with embarrassment at the way she was being treated. I do agree with that. Tim, tell me, as an Iraq war veteran, uh, do you um, and many of your colleagues, do you, do you feel bitter about that war because it was sold to you on a falsehood? Well, I just feel very sad for uh, the people of Iraq because they've been pushed into the arms of... Um, their um, unfriendly neighbour Iran, and they have no choice in that matter. Um, and um, I think that they will rise again, but it's going to take a long time. And there's thousands of people dead who didn't need to die. And I think that's the regret we have, and including our own people. OK, so finally, quickly, Colonel Tim, are you saying that Tony Blair should not get a knighthood? I'm saying that uh, given the uh, slings and arrows he threw at our monarchy, the way he behaved, that uh, he should turn around and say, I'm not worthy of this, and I can't accept a gift from an institution which I tried so hard to demean. OK. Tim Collins, thank you very much indeed. And folks, you at home, I want your view. Does Tony Blair deserve this knighthood? GBviews at gbnews.uk. Right, or hashtag Farage at GB News. Now, let's go to John McTernan, strategist, commentator, and, of course, formerly Tony Blair's political secretary while he was prime minister. John, are you astonished by the scale of the row that's erupted over the course of the last few days about the knighthood? Well, look, I'm, I'm astonished at the number of people who want to criticise the Queen. Uh, it's her order of the garter, it's her award, uh, and... Uh, People who would otherwise, I would have thought, respected tradition, the tradition of granting this award to prime ministers, uh, seem to object to it. Um, and the lack of historical grasp, you know, Tim Collins saying that Tony tried to undermine the monarchy. I think uh, the Queen looks back on what he did support her at the, uh, during the death of Princess Diana and the aftermath of that, would say that he actually helped to strengthen the monarchy in a very difficult, difficult moment. But look, Tony always says it was 
the greatest privilege of his life to be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for two reasons. One, which I'm sure you'll agree with, is the greatest country in the world. Uh, and the second is because, because it's the greatest country in the world, one of the things you can do is have any opinion of him you want and say it wherever you want. And he's always respected other people's views to criticise him. He's perfectly willing to defend his own view, his own position. He always has done. But yeah. he celebrates the fact that that many people can criticise him and criticise the Queen even. The argument here, I think, um, and, and I was making the point a moment ago to Colonel Tim Collins, is that prime ministers make decisions in crises yeah. and, some, and some work out well and some work out badly. But what is very specific, I think, about this three quarters of a million people that have signed this online petition. And, and really, I think the Jeff Hoon uh, revelations overnight have added to that. I mean, what do you make of Jeff Hoon, you know, former defence secretary? Yes, I know he's publishing a book. But when he says that a very important piece of legal advice around whether the war was strictly legal or not in terms of international law, that Jonathan Pohl, Blair's chief of staff, told his senior civil servant to burn it. That is a pretty damning allegation, isn't it? It is, and one that Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Powell completely denies. And I've known Jonathan uh, for years and years and years. He, he is a public servant. He wouldn't lie about that. He wouldn't have said to do that. More interestingly, actually, is the silence uh, in the coverage of this, and maybe it's in, it's in, um, in Jeff's book, that the armed forces get their own legal advice on the targets they choose. They have to be signed off by lawyers and then sometimes by, by ministers. Um, so our armed forces don't get involved in illegal wars uh, because they take their own ah. legal advice. I met the lawyers. I was an advisor ah. in them uh, in ah, MOD. The armed, and they forces, take, they take... the armed forces may well take advice, legal advice, on what is a legitimate target and what is not. I don't doubt that. For one moment, the question here are not the actions of the military and whatever advice they received. The question here is, did Prime Minister Blair and those around him take the military and take this country to war on something that was a lie? I mean, sexed up was the term that, that the Chilcot inquiry used. Did he take the country to war on a lie at a huge cost? Because that is what those three quarters of a million signatories are saying. No, I understand that. And I think, look, there's only one person who is responsible for the Iraq war in the end, one, one man alone, and that's Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein refused to allow United Nations weapons inspectors uh, into, into, into the country. He refused, in the face of an ultimatum from the United Nations, an ultimatum which was backed by the threat of force. Um, in the face of those things, if the United Nations issued an ultimatum to back up its inspectors, you, you have two choices. One is go, oh, fair enough, the dictator's not happy with us. Um, that's okay. And then have nothing you can ever say again to any country to enforce weapons inspection, or you say... He's gone. Well, I think we'd heard what John McTernan had to say. He believes that Blair was in the right in terms of what happened in Iraq and that he should, absolutely should, be Sir Tony Blair, which is how the newspapers are styling him already. I look forward to reading out some of your comments after the break, after which I'm going to talk to a rabbi who has quit the BBC over, and I quote, it's inexcusable reporting of an anti-Semitic attack.
Three quarters of a million people have signed a petition saying Tony Blair should not get a knighthood. And we've just debated it with two well-known figures. Now it's your turn. Should he get a knighthood? Pippa says, no, of course not. Check out the petition. Yet, just because lots of people have signed it doesn't necessarily mean they're right. Jess says, he's already got a knighthood. Done deal. It's how the system works, paving the way for the next batch of elites, says one cynic. Another one says to me, there is no way he should receive any award from Her Majesty. It's a terrible mistake the Queen has made. And this was a point John McTernan made, that the Queen is coming under quite a lot of criticism over this. Malcolm says, Blair's honour is an insult to democracy. Pauline says, a simple solution would be if Blair turned down the knighthood, thereby relieving the Queen of this embarrassment, that would be a gentlemanly and chivalrous sign of respect. And it's the order of the garter in particular, I think, uh, that perhaps has got people upset. The knighthood kind of comes with it. Now, a story that broke overnight that quite surprised me. A BBC regular over the course of the last 30 years or so, uh, Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein, and he's been a regular uh, broadcaster on the BBC and, and Radio 4's Today programme, Thought for the Day, and many other things. And he has, after 30 years, written a letter to the BBC, and he's quit. He's had enough, he says. Inexcusable coverage from the corporation of an anti-Semitic attack that wrongly accused the victims of making Islamophobic slurs. Well, we'll talk more about that incident, and it was a pretty ugly, nasty incident. But I'm very pleased to be joined by Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein. Good afternoon to you. Oh, good afternoon. Oh, good well, thank you. Thank you for joining us and, and, and making the time. Now, you were, you were actually rather popular on the BBC. Your thought for the days uh, were listened to. Uh, by some really rather important people. I think somebody, actually, that we've been mentioning already in this show. I understand perhaps even Her Majesty the Queen might have been one of your fans. Well, she, Her, Her Majesty, bless her, came to Manchester uh, about 15 years ago and she spent the morning with the Jewish community and she was presented to the president of the community and shook hands and said, is Rabbi Waiwai here? To which he rather embarrassedly said, no, ma'am. said, oh, what a pity. We're, we think he's awfully good. And we listen all the time on the radio. So, yeah, I suppose I must have had some success on the BBC. Yeah, you must have done. You must have done. Now, the BBC is our, you know, our national state broadcaster, uh, not as popular in many quarters as it once was. Uh, and its neutrality, of course, uh, has been questioned uh, repeatedly over the last few years. Just very quickly... Tell us about this incident and the way that you feel the BBC reported it. Well, first of all, you're 100% right. The neutrality of the BBC is always up for debate. Uh, my 30 years there, it's club. It's a membership thing. And a symbol of membership is absolutely required reading of The Guardian. And you see people wandering about the BBC cartoon, cartoon, uh, canteen yes. all the time yes. with their guardians under there. You know this. I do. Um, then, I mean, you, you might get away with reading The Times, but if you're a Telegraph reader, you're toast. That's, you have no career. You will now find your new position is working in the BBC bar as the dartboard. Uh, that's, that's about it. The BBC certainly has a culture, and the culture is woke, left-wing, 
and always has been. Now, there's the old debate, can you separate your politics from um, your objective uh, reporting? Mm, not convinced. Wow. Well, no. I've been able... And, and this, this, this particular incident, Rabbi, this particular incident, this was a group of Jewish kids on a bus uh, feeling threatened by people outside... And the BBC reporting, which you described as inexcusable, suggested that the Jewish children had made racial slurs. Yeah, even more than that, the kids celebrating a Jewish festival were on the, the pavement doing a wee bit of a dance, was surrounded by, and apparently as Muslim guys, um, giving Nazi salutes, F the Jews, Palestine. He's just a bunch of Jewish kids. Nothing, no, they're not Israelis. They're not Zionists. Nobody's interviewed them. They said, flee on the bus. The guy started attacking the bus. Um, the BBC first reported that there were, there were anti-Muslim slurs from the kids, plural. They withdrew that, turned it into one claim that one of the kids made an anti-Muslim slur. This is after the guys are telling F you and, yeah. and, and, and C. Kyle, uh, etc. And um, this has been now analysed by uh, a forensic voice expert who says that's not true. The BBC should have apologised, should have said we got it wrong, but it yeah. very rarely does. But in this case, it was critical that it did, because its, its relationship with the Jewish community is in tatters as a consequence. And having been there for 30 years, worked with some superb people, yeah. uh, I had to say goodbye. Well, was it just this incident, or do you feel... There is perhaps a, a bias, a pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli bias uh, that is there within BBC News broadcast? I don't think there's the slightest doubt of that one. You don't spend tens of thousands of pounds fighting the release of your own internal inquiry into your own, that showed prejudice of exactly that type, um, unless it exists within the BBC. And having worked there for 30 years, I'm, I, I, can, I can give you many incidents that show that. However... Well, um, well, I, these, these are very serious charges. You've said what you've said with great passion. Uh, you will be missed on the Today programme, but I'm sure you're going to pop up somewhere else pretty soon. Rabbi Rubenstein, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And the BBC, in response, have said, we are sorry to hear of Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein's decision, as he has always provided thoughtful and compassionate contributions to our programmes, which have been deeply appreciated by our listeners. Anti-Semitism is abhorrent and we strive to serve the Jewish community and all communities across the UK fairly. Mm. Very, very interesting. Now, there has been today uh, some pretty remarkable events, I think, in Bristol. Four people. And this is about the toppling of the Colston statue, which took place on the 7th of June 2020. You remember what happened the statue was torn down and thrown into Bristol Dock. Why? Because Colston, who'd been a very major benefactor to Bristol, uh, you know, theatres named after him, schools, goodness knows what else, uh, because he was a very rich man. But he'd become a very rich man because he was a very big slave trader. And there had been a lot of controversy around the naming of buildings and the statue, and it had been going on for some years. That's the background. But today in court, four People, Rianne Graham, Milo Ponsford, Sage Willoughby, 
and Jack Skews have all been cleared of criminal damage over the toppling of the Edward Colston statue in Bristol at the Black Lives Matter protest on June 7, 2020. The defendants admitted their involvement but denied their actions were criminal, claiming the statue itself had been a hate crime against the people of Bristol. The jury agreed. So all four are innocent of the charges laid against them. I just want to say, this sets the most astonishing, worrying precedent for those who wish to get involved in direct action. Yes, I understand that Colston was a slave trader, but what next is any public monument or building safe on the back of this judgment? I think it's very, very worrying indeed. And while we're talking about Black Lives Matter, well, just to say the movement have achieved considerable success in the United States of America. Yes, several cities on the back of their protest have significantly cut police budgets. Remember, defunding the police is one of the main aims of BLM. And the results have been spiralling rates of serious crime and murder. That's the Black Lives Matter movement for you. And I am still astonished that so many sporting and corporate people think it's something that we should somehow um, applaud. I don't. Now, uh, what the Farage moment here. President Macron. Well, this is absolutely astonishing. In response to an, a, a, an interview, he said he wants to pee off France's unvaccinated in denying them access to even more aspects of daily life. Yes, the French president's inflammatory comments came as the government seeks to punish, through parliamentary legislation, people who haven't got a vaccine. They want to make it compulsory if you were to enjoy cultural activities, to use an intercity train, to visit a cafe from January the 15th. No longer is it possible to have a recent test to say that you're negative, to live any sort of a normal life in France if, probably when, this legislation passes. He did this interview with the Parisian, put online Tuesday night, uh, and, and this is a direct quote from the French head of state. As for the non-vaccinated, I really want to pee them off, and we will continue to do this to the end. This is the strategy, he said. Macron added this would mean, and I quote, limiting as much as possible their access to activities in social life. He even said, when my freedom threatens that of others, I become an irresponsible person. An irresponsible person is not a citizen. They are truly astonishing words. I have to say, Macron is a ghastly little man. I met him, saw these big built-up shoes, didn't trust him from that moment onwards. And another, what the Farage moment. The Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, was not in the Commons. He's tested positive for a second time. Clearly the booster, not working for Sir Keir. He's now isolating. And, of course, Angela Rayner stood in in the House of Commons. Um, but it's really extraordinary because Sir Keir tested positive for this in October and missed the budget as a result. And previously, he said to isolate four times, having been pinged, having come into contact with somebody else. Now, this is extraordinary. We know that Omicron uh, is there uh, and, 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 you know, 218,000 two days ago contracted it. Um, 
Interestingly, he hasn't got any symptoms, but he is isolating. But the most remarkable thing about all of this, and it was pointed out by the Guido Fawkes website, who do do some great work, and they said that based on two positive tests and four pings, Starmer has now spent 57 days in self-isolation since the start of the pandemic. And 57 days is the same length as the main London Blitz during the war. Well done, Guido. Folks, they always bring a smile. In a moment, Joe Valente, winner of The Apprentice in 2015, serial entrepreneur, will join me for Talking Pints. The GB News pub is open. Yes, it is Talking Pints. And I want to introduce you to my guest. Now, he won The Apprentice in 2015, that Alan Sugar programme. You know the one, you're fired. Let's have a look at Joe Valenti winning The Apprentice. Technology has been my best friend for over 50 years. But maybe it's time to make new friends. Joseph... You are going to be my business partner. Joe Valenti, welcome to Talking Pies. Thank you, Nigel. Cheers. <laughs> Happy New Year. Uh, yeah, it is still just about. Happy New Year, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks for having me down. It's quite emotional watching that clip, actually. Every time I see it, it sort of gets me right there. Well, I bet it does, because you say yourself that you came from a very modest mm-hmm. background with no particular advantages. Yeah. And uh, first question I'm going to ask you, what did you get expelled for school, from school for? <laughs> I really hated authority, I think. Um, right. And actually, that's gone on to serve me quite well as an entrepreneur. <laughs> the teacher wanted me to do it their way, and I wanted, it to, do, I wanted to do it my way. So um, I really struggled with being graded on subjects that I already knew that I wasn't any good at. Um, you know, there's no point telling me I'm a failure at art when I know I can only draw stick men. So I kind of didn't really get um, why um, the institution was trying to train me me up in that way and I didn't like it and I wanted to leave and I wanted to go hang around my friends and skive and that's exactly what I chose to do. So they asked you to leave? Yeah, they asked me to leave, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there are people that get expelled from school and don't do well in life. Yeah. But it's interesting, there are quite a lot of successful entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who just don't kind of fit in mm-hmm. to the normal constraints. So you're out of school, mm-hmm. but you decide you want to get out. And I, and I, I read that you actually read a book of Alan Sugars, and yep. part of your because you were an apprentice, um, apprentice plumber. That was the trade that you were learning. But, mm. but somehow Alan Sugar intervened before. Yeah, no, this was um, fast forward when I was 22 years of age. I just came back from Australia. I'd read Lloyd Sugar's book, and that's yeah. what made me quit my 50 grand a year gas engineer job, take out a 15,000 pound Tesco loan, and start a business with um, no plan, no strategy, um, no knowledge so or action. Why did they lend you the money? Um, because I took it out as a home development loan, a home improvement loan, and used it for the business um, <laughs> on the back of the salary. We Sorry, Tesco, but that's what I did. Folks, <laughs> any of this. But... I raised the finance that way, which was great. But, you know, um, to just rewind yeah. uh, to a point that you were saying about being expelled from school, and a yeah. lot of people don't actually achieve when that happens to them. Yeah. They can go down the wrong path. Yeah. I was very close to doing that myself. I was hanging around with guys five or six years older than me that were going nowhere in life, and I remember... 
when I walked out of the headmaster's office with my mum and she um, looked down at me crying and was just like, son, what are you going to do now? Your life's over. You're, you know, you're finished. And my dad had left when I was 13 years of age. And I remember just thinking, actually, mum, don't worry. One day I'm going to make you so proud. This isn't the end for me. This is just the beginning. But I also realised very early on that the cavalry wasn't coming. Nobody was coming to save me. And actually, if I wanted to change my future, if I wanted to change my stars, change my destiny, I had to do something at 15 years of age that was going to um, change my future. And that's when I went to work for free for a local plumber for a year. Um, and that got me off the streets. Yeah. It got me into work. And that's where my career started. But that was a fantastic lesson for me. And since that day, I've never relied on anybody to help me. And I've been the one that's driven every um, decision that I've made. So you set up your own company. Yeah. And it goes well. Yeah, it went really, really well. I came back from Australia and my mum bought me Lord Sugar's book between Christmas and New Year. I read it cover to cover, bearing in mind being expelled. I hadn't read a book for so long and I loved The Apprentice. For years I wanted to go on it and I couldn't put it down and it changed me that much that I saw how Lord Sugar had come from a council estate in London had gone on to be able to build billionaire wealth in one lifetime and I'd always believed that the successful people had something that I didn't. They were given an opportunity that I wasn't and Lord Sugar's journey showed to me that, no, actually, we can all achieve. We're all given um, the same start in life. Almost all of us are given the same start in life. And so um, that's what allowed me to quit my job, £50,000 a year yeah. at 22, mm. take out a £15,000 loan and go on to um, start Impregas off the back of his book. And then fast forward to the time I was 25, I was doing half a million a year, applied for The Apprentice. And that same Lord Billionaire, the book that I'd read of his, so bought he- half of my company for a quarter of a million pounds. <laughs> yeah, so, so how did you get on The Apprentice? I mean, you were clearly a sugar fan, yep. and he was clearly an inspiring figure to you, and that's yep. terrific. And I, I think, you know, I hope that in turn you can be an inspiring mm-hmm. figure. I hope to be, so too. To, be, to people who don't come from privileged backgrounds to say you can get on mm-hmm. and achieve and do things. But how did you get on the programme? So it was quite a funny story, actually. I came into my home on January the 9th, 2015. My business was doing well, but I'd levelled off. I was a plumber that had started a plumbing business. I didn't have any business education or training and no mentors. And I kind of lost my way and I didn't know what to do next. I needed mentorship. I needed cash for growth and I wanted exposure to get my brand out there. And I came in that evening, nine o'clock, got my phone out. Lord Sugar's Facebook page came up. The final call for The Apprentice. Only 24 hours <laughs> left to apply. And that very moment, I know the universe had sent me a sign. It was sent from the gods. This was um, your moment. This was my moment. And then as soon as I put my details in, um, it just escalated from there. Amazing. Took off from there, you know. Were you a bit daunted going to do The Apprentice? Because it is, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the full glove. Obviously, Alan Sugar here, Donald Trump in America. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I... I watched the programme, I've watched many of the programmes, and I can see the nerves of many. I mean, were you slightly overawed by it? I don't want to sound um, too overconfident, but I was so um, convinced that it was my destiny to win from the day that I started, that I knew that I was going on the right path. I remember when my mum dropped me off at the train station. She said, see you soon, son. I said, next time you see me, I'm going to be the winner of the show. And I remember her looking back at me thinking... 
Joe, I know that you're confident, but you've got a challenge ahead of you, right? And I'll never forget the moment when I came out on the You're Hired show. It was the proudest moment of my life. I walked out on the stage and I saw my mum in the front row crying so again, proud. Again, again. Again, and I was just like, I've, I've, I've done this for you, mum. I've shown you that I've turned my life around. This is your moment. Be proud of what I've achieved. Um, and um, she texted me like a year later, actually, kind of, um, when the show was coming back on and she said, who'd have thought you'd have won? Actually, Joe, you knew. And then I was like, boom, that was the time she realised that actually I'm not crazy and that what I say I'm going to do, I can, I will actually go on to achieve. So that was a pretty cool moment for me as well. You see, it's clear to me that, well, I mean, obviously self-belief in spades, clearly, um, which is important. Yeah. Not too much, but it's important. But one thing that does strike me, you know, you better... Difficult upbringing, mm -hmm. school doesn't work, Yeah, you're out at 15. But the one thing that you had that I sense that perhaps a lot of people mm -hmm. from that background or those mm -hmm. difficulties don't have is you had something called ambition. Yeah. And do enough young people, do enough young people today have ambition? No, they don't. And I think that many people from um, a challenging background, they don't have any shining examples of success. Now, I was very lucky um, to have my uncle. You know, I owe a lot of my success yeah. to that man. He was a very, very um, successful businessman. And when I saw him once or twice a year, he would show up in these suits, in these brand new cars. Um, and I looked at him and I thought, how does one man achieve that level of success versus my dad um, who hadn't? And I thought, that is the guy that I'm going to be like. That's the guy that I want to become. And um, I saw that somebody very close to me had been able to, you know, achieve with their so lives. Role model, so, really. Yeah, it was a role model, 100%. Probably my first role model. And, um, you know, that made me see that I could break the mould. As well as Lord Sugar's book and everything else, it made it more personal to me because he was my blood, he was my family. So that really, really helped. And I think there's not a lot of people that have relatable figures that they can look up to mm. or aspire to become that uh, um, that can make it real for them because they know them, if that makes sense, right? What, what is the ambition? What was the ambition? Was it to have those cars? Was it to have the flash holidays? Was it to yeah. have, was it the material? Possession? It was to. My mum worked extremely hard for us growing up. She worked three or four jobs to um, pay for us and did everything. She committed and sacrificed, you know, many many years for us. And my first ambition in starting my business was um, to put my mum into retirement. I was able to achieve that when I was around 28 years of age, and that was one of my most proudest moments, actually. So it was for her first and foremost. But it literally was to prove a point, not to the world, but to myself, that I have mm. so much potential to go on and become. Um, you know, somebody so incredible that's going to change the world. My mum used to laugh and say, you know, I say to her, the world's going to know my name. I'm going to leave a, a legacy for a thousand years. You know, I'm going to make an impact on this planet. There's only one opportunity to do so. And I still very much am on that same path. And so I just feel there's so much untapped potential in all of us. And I don't want to be laying on the deathbed, hopefully many years from now, because I intend to live to 100, hopefully many years from now, looking back and saying... Why didn't I have a... Re yeah, regret. Yeah, no, Why I, didn't I do no, it? I can't I, allow that no, to happen, that. you know? No, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I took a very different route to you. Mm -hmm. and mine was a political mission. Yep. You know, and I, and, I, and I often people say, why on earth are you doing it? You must be mad. And I thought, if years to come, if I don't have a go at this, I'll never, ever forgive myself. You know, 100%. You, know, you see that chance yep. in life. You've got to go for it.
after The Apprentice, you know, profile, you have one or two ups and downs with mm -hmm. businesses, as yeah. everybody does. Yeah. But tell us where you are now and what you're doing, because it's really interesting. So I um, train construction businesses how to grow, right? So after um, I got in business with Lloyd Sugar, I was in business with him for a couple of years. I bought him out, first apprentice ever, um, to do that. And then um, we were doing about a million and a half a year at that time. I wanted to take it national. He wanted me to go slow. I wanted to go big. So I said, look, let me buy you out and I'll take on all of the risk. And if it goes wrong, it's on my shoulders, not on your record. And so I went on to build the largest independent boiler installation company in the UK. By the time I was 29 years of age, we had a 10 million turnover, 100 staff. And um, I was a plumber. I, I was a businessman running a trades business at that point, not a tradesman running a trades business. So my level of business acumen had leveled up. But also at the same time, I was learning as I was going and going through all this level of growth. It was um, having to acquire and learn all these skills made it very difficult. And I had to sell my business. It wasn't under the greatest circumstances. But when I exited in January of 2020 at 30 years of age, almost having to kind of start again, really, I decided to go into something that I was passionate about. That's training and development. And, um, and I looked at the construction industry and I said, what was it that made, what was it that um, allowed me to make mistakes in business? That was because I was a tradesman originally running a trades business. You know, at 22, I was an expelled from school, qualified plumber that took out a 15 grand loan and started a business. By the time I was 29, I had 100 people working for me, a million a month in sales, a national company. And to level up that much, I've acquired a level of skills through success and failure in business that can be taught to other businesses yeah. out there and give them the roadmap to success. Hairdressers start hairdressing businesses, accountants start accounting practices. And what, is it, what, what is the one thing? I mean, you've got the experience. Yeah. You've had the ups, you've had the downs, yeah. and anybody in business does. Yeah. But what is the one big thing that you can bring to a business? Um, uh, knowledge, skill, um, experience. Again, I've seen both success and failure. I've had success for so many years. At one point, everything I touched turned to gold that when actually I had really challenging times in business, I was so underprepared for what the downside looked like that um, I hadn't had an opportunity to experience that. Now when I train businesses, I can look and see immediately where they're about to fall down. And at the Trade Mastermind, which is our construction company, yeah. um, in two years, I've taken it from a startup in a pandemic to 3 million in sales. Um, we've got 22 staff now, I've created 22 jobs in a pandemic in this training company. We're the first in the space in construction to train. So we're pioneering a new industry. We've acquired 1,500 construction clients across the UK, we've launched a um, recruitment business, Trade Recruit. Um, we've launched a marketing agency recently, Valente life. Media, and the Trade Mastermind is um, just going from strength to strength. We've um, uh, um, taken those businesses under the trade group now, and I intend to take that um, hopefully to a £100 million um, valuation in the next um, three well, years by the time I'm You're 35. not short of ambition. <laughs> you're not short of ambition, which is a good thing, I think. Finally, I want, you to, I want a word from you to people out there. They could be younger people, they mm -hmm. could be middle-aged people who are having a look at a business idea, yep. thinking of taking a risk, thinking of having a go. What should they do? How should they, how should they make that decision? Make it. Do it. Just do it. Go for it. Just do it. Screw it and do it. 
You know, Richard Branson says, screw it, let's do it. You've got to go for it. If you're young, if you're middle-aged, if you're old, you've got to go for it. You've got one shot, one opportunity, and what you said, take a risk. People are afraid to risk. Yeah. They're protecting um, the little that they have, thinking that that's their world. But actually, um, success isn't difficult. It really isn't. Um, but people are afraid of their potential uh, more than the failure, I believe. There you go. They're the words from Joe Valenti. We welcome you on Talking Pints and thank, thank you. you. There's a bit of inspiration for you there. Right, we're there for the end of the show. It's Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions and I try and answer them sight unseen. A viewer asks, would you be surprised if they tried to push a fourth or fifth vaccine by September 22? No, not at all. I really wouldn't. The Israelis are pushing the fourth vaccine. Now, I can't see any end to it, which is why I was very pleased to see Sir Andrew Pollard, the boss of a JCVI, yesterday saying, hey, we need to have a think before we start giving out the fourth vaccine. Clearly, the booster didn't work out for Sakir so well, did it? I am still on the booster you know, the jury's out, as far as I'm concerned, still. James asked, have you ever changed your views based on any interviews you've conducted on GB News? But it's only been a few months. Um, I, don't think, I don't think any of us change our views 100%. But I do think the experience of interacting with people perhaps makes you think about things just a little differently. Gives you a different edge, different perspective. Uh, and, and so, yeah, but has anybody in GB News... Turn me round completely. No. But what Joe's taught me tonight is that I think I've probably, financially, not taken enough risks in life. Another viewer asked, last question, time's running out. What is an appropriate punishment for politicians who repeatedly lie to the public? Re-election, -re normally, uh, because that's what they do. Look, I think Iraq war was, was prosecuted entirely wrongly. I think it would have been better for all concerned if Blair hadn't accepted this at this moment in time. But he did. Coming up uh, next, it's going to be Mark Stein. First, though, let's have a look at that cold weather outside. 